0: Without further ado, another episode of the Success Story Podcast. All right, thanks again for joining me. I am very excited to be sitting down with Dr. Rebecca Luisa, who is the founder and CEO of the Film Festival Doctor. Uh, Now, Rebecca began her career in the film industry uh, in 2008, working as a producer on some of the most successful national uh, horror film festivals, uh, named the Arbitoire Horror Festival. Um, about 10 years ago, she created her own company, and I. this could be a little bit dated, probably a little bit more than 10 years now, but uh, the film festival doctor, and that's a nod to her academic past. So Rebecca ha- does have a PhD in film and audience research. Um, her thesis based on the work of her hero, Quentin Tarantino, also one of my favorite, uh, favorite uh, names in film. Rebecca and her team will continue to uh, basically create prescriptions for success, and they are entirely focused on transforming the lives of independent films through film festivals. So what they do is they give films, filmmakers visibility, opportunities, recognition. Um, Currently, she has offices in London and L.A., and she has helped win over 650 awards uh, and counting for her clients, and supported over six hundred and eighty eight different creative pieces across the world so uh, very excited um, to sit down and speak. Thank you so much for joining me and i 'm really interested to hear a little bit more about your story what is a what is a doctor of uh, of film <laughs> and and how did you how did you get to hear
1: yes yeah, so you 're right, so thank you for that wonderful intro that 's probably the one of the best intros I've ever had. Um, so that's correct. So I'm a, I have a PhD in film and audience research. And I was very fascinated back in say when I was doing my undergraduate degrees and MAs in Tarantino. I loved his films. I'm a big fan, even like films people don't like of him. Um, and I'm you know, very much into his work. But what I really found interesting was not just his filmmaking, but how his fans responded to his films. They all seem to be extremely passionate and also male. And I was very interested in that. And I wanted to do research on that in the world of academia. So I did. And then because it was going so well, the research and my um, supervisor said, maybe you should think about a PhD, which would be like, you know, a doctorate. I was a bit overwhelmed by that because it was like, you know, this massive book, like, you know, 80,000 words um, of all about Tarantino and having to, you know, assess kind of theories about him. And I was like, I'm not sure I could do that. And I thought, actually, I want to do it. So I know I can, because that's limiting belief. So I was like, I can do this. So then I moved from um, England to Wales in the UK. And it's called Aberystwyth. Uh, a very cold, but also very charming town. And it was there where I did the PhD and learned a lot about myself and Tarantino in that time, I can tell you. you no, know, inside out. But also from that journey, I didn't expect to get where I am now with it because my plan was at that point to become an expert in Tarantino and his fan base and then go into academia and teach about Tarantino and other kind of things like that. That was my plan and, you know, settle down and live in Wales where the sheep are and it's all cold. But <laughs> I thought halfway through is that I got the bug for film festivals. So a friend of mine, Gaz, um, Gareth Bailey, he is the manager of this um, theatre. Average Arts Centre. And he was asked to put on a horror film festival uh, by the Council of Wales. And he said, do you want to help out? Because he didn't do it before, neither had I. But I thought, yeah, why not? This sounds like fun. And that happy distraction and the hobby became a, like, a vision into this is actually is my sole purpose. I really want to start doing more in the world of festivals. And I enjoyed producing it, You know, co-producing with the team, behind the films and talking to filmmakers. But actually it was during this time when I found there was a gap in the market. So I used the PhD skills to figure out that there was a gap in terms of the no filmmakers were able to find someone to support them to get their films into festivals. And that's where we are now with my company. It was then born in Aberystwyth, um, the film Festival Doctor in 2010 when it was very tiny. Um, It's grown since then obviously through doing everyday sheer hard work and determination. But also people were very negative about it too saying it wouldn't work no one does it you know there's only one or two people across the US and it doesn't seem like it's in demand. Uh, can people afford it? So they were again limiting but I was at the time I got a bit nervous but I thought no this didn't sound right so I just kept at it and then kept growing and growing and now we have the company. So so the academia career did then finish. Um, I did all I could on Tarantino. I didn't want to do any more um, and the PhD I'm very proud of, but it was then literally a new chapter moving to London um, to do my company.
0: Oh, when you, that's, thank you for the story, I appreciate it, um, so that tees it up. So when you're, when you're going so deep into um, a, a certain topic, when, and I, I, this is actually a question that I would actually have for anybody who's gone so far into academia and, and had their PhD. When you come out of that level of, of granularity in a topic how do you how do you go in and just start um, a business that is very it's very removed from the granularity? You have to think about like all the different sales and marketing and operations and things that I think I would assume get pushed by the wayside when you're doing a a, a couple page. I don't know how long this paper was on on, on Tarantino, but I'm sure it wasn't uh, it wasn't short. So you have this huge paper. You've researched every aspect of his style of the stuff that he does and then you have to go and then you choose to go start a business and then that business is successful so how did you how did you make that transition what were the first steps because you didn't have when i look at a classic you know entrepreneur it's somebody who's worked in their field they've worked in a business aspect for like 10 years that's the most that is a classical definition of of a successful entrepreneur and then they solve a problem in their industry after working, working in their industry, seeing, but they've also been exposed to the business side of things. But you didn't have that.
1: No, that is a great question because as in hindsight, I wish I knew um, about business coaches and about how people can help you up a business. Because you're right, because I had no business experience at all. I mean, I was very savvy and organized because my background before I went into academia was being a PA. So I would always be good at organizing and event management. So that would always be a good thing. But business skills in terms of like bringing in systems, funnels, all that kind of thing, it was pretty much like I had no experience whatsoever. So it was learning on the job, which I wouldn't want to do again, (laughs) but I'm glad I did because I learned the skills on the job. And then I was pretty much then in in a way, I learned on, as I learned on the job, I learned a whole new set of skills that were obviously not what I got taught at university. Um, so in a way, cause I found the niche and the gap when I was working with the festival, traveling around the festival circuit, talking to filmmakers, I knew what needed to be done. And also I didn't let people who were being, who were like not particularly very open-minded to say it won't work and there's no point doing it kind of thing. You might have to work for free to prove it works. I was very much like grounded in the fact that I wasn't going to let that stop me. Um, and I kind of then got ideas of how to run the business. But yeah, it was hard because it was only, say, through the, about four or five years later when I was getting a bit overwhelmed because we had more work coming in. We had you know great results. I was working like to burnout. And then I thought, I need to get a system in place. I really do. And that's when I then met Ed J.C. Smith, who I work with, and Janda Melito. And those people over the years have just literally transformed my business. and helped me put a system in place, offering packages, Offering different types of consultancies, you know, putting a system to the point where I can understand cash flow, and none of that. So it was pretty much like having to, like as I said before, just you know, kind of go with it and then use bits to make it oh, that coherent. But there was no backbone, there was no infrastructure. So without that, it didn't fall, um, and it was still going well and it was growing. But then I got again, I got burnt out by it because there was no system. And when I found those people that just gave me those methods. I'm so grateful for them because now we're having better business.
0: No, that's uh, that is very important and that's sort of trial yeah. by fire. So it just shows like oh, yeah. it shows like tenacity. It shows like a little bit of of I guess your your passion for this because you you didn't have the systems in place. And I think that a lot of people do have systems in place and they still fail just because they don't have that. So, you know, I guess maybe the maybe the ability to complete a PhD is is indication that you're passionate enough about a topic. Because that's, yeah. that's not easy. So what is, I want to know more about business side of it, but I'm just really curious. Um, what is it? What is a PhD in fit? In, like, does, does anyone get one? Is it, well, it's like, what is it like? How, like, what do you have to do for it? Have you met Quentin Tarantino? Does he know that you've written uh, pages on, on his work? Like all these, all these things about the PhD? Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, now I know actually that he knows of the of the thesis because this is back in, when I wrote the PhD, I started doing the research, was in 2008. And I used, as a case study, his most recent film at that time, which was called Death Group, part of the Grindhouse uh, trilogy. Sorry, quenastable Bill Rodriguez. And back in the day, this was before the launch of Facebook. <laughs> so when I launched my online questionnaire, it was all done via forums, and there's this big forum, and I think it still runs now to a degree. I think it's gone to Facebook now. but It's called the Tarantino Archives, and that would be like the hub for all of Tarantino's diehard fans talking about everything from Vic and Vince and Vega to Jackie Brown, why it's underrated, to why four rooms no one likes, you know, all these kind of conversations. And that was the place to find these fans to get my research. So in terms of what a PhD is, um, obviously they're very different to all talk types of different type of industries. But in terms of film, mine was what was called an audience research PhD. So it's where you uh, research and analyze the responses from actual real film audiences by the means of questionnaires, groups, interviews, that kind of thing. And then use the findings to see what patterns arise and what um, what innovative and unique findings you find compared to what you're studying. So in my case was Tarantino. So I looked at the area of emotional response. And there's a very small amount of research in film, in film theory about uh, emotional response to film. And what I did was to assess it if it was actually valid and say, shall we say, accurate, how they think people respond to film. And I use Tarantino because I know his films inside out, but also because he has a hugely passionate fan base that I always found really interesting after all the time I did him. And they were very good because they really, they really liked all these theories apart. It made them like they were nonsense because the way they respond is not the way how they think people do. They're extremely passionate, the point where they seem as a father figure, a godlike figure. And also the way that they become engaged and emotionally attached to his films is via Tarantino's dialogue. So it was fascinating findings, you know, really, really interesting. And the PhD actually... Although obviously I don't nothing to do with my, well, it is something to do with the business, because obviously I'm in film, but it's more that I used skills of project management into my entrepreneurial skills with my business. I think that's why I held it together, because I know how to with a PhD how to break um, a big project down to bite-sized chunks and not to lose things and also to see it from start to finish and have the commitment there as well.
0: So when you when you go so granular, um, and this will lead to your business, don't, don't worry. When you go so granular on, on understanding how somebody like Tarantino is so successful, because you're understanding yeah. uh, the verbiage, the stylistic elements of a film, is that something that you can use to pull out and see and look at other films and say, I know how psychologically people respond to films. I know that the film that you've put out is going to be successful for reasons that I've seen. Other, like Quentin Tarantino, is like a, a legend. Um, he has similar stylistic elements, and that's going to grip people. That's going to tie into people. That's going to get them emotionally. Is that something that you can see when you or, or maybe consult all, all these independent films on how to market, on how to on how to get their film out there? Is or is it? I, I don't know. Am I am I pulling at things that aren't there, or is that is that? Uh,
1: um, well, when you say about with Tarantino, he's got a unique fan base and how they respond. But also there were similarities in terms of they also have like a very, not as passionate, but they have a very much like a, they really admire Robert, Robert Rodriguez. His, mm,
0: like, yeah,
1: yeah. And those kind of films which I classify as being cool, you know, so cool directors like Sin City, um, not so much Spy Kids, um, and also films like, um, what's that one with Zack Snyder? Um, the, oh, the, all these, like, it's not cheesy movies, but the ones which are kind of the very much, like they're very stylish films. Stylish yeah, films yeah. Are The ones which tend to have quite the same kind of following emotionally from Tarantino's fans and also those that like that kind of genre. So it tends to be based upon the old tour kind of signatures, which tend to be quite individual. So in terms of how I like help my clients, um, I can see sort of some of their films in terms of how they appeal to audiences. But it's very much a unique kind of trademark that Tarantino and people like Rodriguez have, because um, they are which is one of a kind. And even Spike Lee hasn't got the same kind of emotional fan base because he's a little bit more out there.
0: I was looking. I was just looking at uh, at, at Zack Snyder's uh, filmography. Cool. Yeah. They have like uh, they, he, like he has three hundred um, Suicide yes. Squad, Justice League. Like I didn't even you know I'm I don't know the the behind the scenes as well as I should, but. Uh, dawn of the dead i guess he worked on as well he's a director there so he has a ton of like yeah, yeah. So very, I, like the
1: very cool.
0: popular.
1: I like them them the cool f- the cool films the cool films. yeah and yeah a few festivals that like cool films we call them cool festivals so sometimes they have a good match there and a lot of festivals for example like tarantino has his own film festival for his own films and his own cinema it, <laughs> yeah, so, so himself <laughs> um, but in terms of does he know about it i th- I know he does he's never, he's never contacted me about it, but um but because the guy that runs runs that forum that ran back in the day, the current archives, he told him about it, and he did say, "Look, he knows about it, and this questionnaire is happening now, and the response I got from all the fans was overwhelming, so they're aware of it, and also he he interviews Tarantino a lot as well and always tells him an update on what's going on. They're quite, in a way, close. Mm, of, yeah. Um, but he does like academia, Tarantino. He's not anti academia. He likes Carol Clover's Women, Chainsaws, and Massacres. Mm, um, mm. Things that are not going to be too <laughs> heavy, Freud, um, but more stuff that's going to be more like in the realm of his filmmaking
0: very very interesting um and i i don't know the world of of film festivals and i think that you know i'm i'm just the consumer right i'm i'm so far removed i'm just what but i still i can understand how the style is Is that is and is that something that uh any sort of filmmaker focuses on to to build that style or is it just it just happens because that's the personality like when i think of quentin tarantino i i almost think of him as doing things like almost like accidentally on purpose, like. He yeah. doesn't, he, he just had a style and it worked and it doubled down. Do you find that that's, uh, is that true or is it more of like a, a truly strategic academic process when these people build things out or does it depend on the person?
1: It really depends upon the person, but Tarantino just has that style because he knows kind of, he makes songs for himself, yeah. not anybody in particular, which I think is also a good thing. Sometimes when people make films, say, sometimes for festival films, they're making it for the festival and not themselves, you know, to prove something in terms of how they can make movies. It needs to be your authentic voice still, no matter what you do. I like that Tarantino is clever, that he pretty much can copy a film, like, for example, Reservoir Dogs *The City on Fire by Ringo Lamb, but a lot more stylish and more entertaining than that one was. But yeah, it's his own unique spin on it. I think the best film in the world, and not just Tarantino, is Pulp Fiction. And that yeah you can imitate if they did a remake of that that's not allowed you know they tried to remake psycho and that didn't work that would just be like not even going there you cannot remake that movie because it's so unique um so again you're right it's all about pretty much um does it on the fly and does things like for him it's all about being an individual because otherwise it wouldn't be giving your own voice to the movie it would ruin the filmmaking.
0: Yeah, very true. Very, And, and that's good. Um, okay, so let's speak about what you're doing and, and what film festival doctor, film festival consultant, um, what is the landscape of film festivals? You know, when you, when you said you first, uh, when you first started, there was not many people doing what you do. So what was the status quo for people before, for, for filmmakers before an individual like you came onto the scene? What did they do to get their film out there?
1: So, what they pretty much did was hope for the best and have no strategy. So, <laughs> the way that. <laughs> sounds
0: replicable, sounds like a great strategy,
1: but. <laughs> yeah, hope for the best. So, back in the day, let's say back 2008, 2007, um, there was a platform called Without a Box, and that is where you can submit your films to festivals. That's now gone. It's called, and what's replaced it is the Fantastic Film Freeway. Without a Box was hard to look at managing and manage and. It was, it was hard work to use actually, but either way is it was just there. So what filmmakers did was just go on without a box, look at festivals and then put that in the shopping cart, put that in the car, put that in the cart and then spend a fortune on festivals that could be wrong for their movie. There was nobody on without a box the website going, "Hey, is that festival right for your film?" Uh, or even give any tips So basically it was literally just hoping for the best and putting it into festivals and seeing what would come out of it. That was before they got thousand submissions, obviously. Now there's a lot more submissions, it's a lot more competitive. Um, you know, it's still tough anyway, but that's what they were doing. So I found this out through research, just by talking to people in bars at the festival. So I always said to them, okay, let's have, a, let's have some questions. So I said, what do you like most all about festivals and what do you dislike about festivals? And they all said, we love going to festivals, uh, getting drunk meeting new people, seeing our film on a big screen and just like a little tiny Vimeo link. Um, we also love meeting new people and actually doing more work with them. We could actually create a whole new connection so we can go around the world with our film. Festivals are an abundance of things. So we love them. But what is stressful is that we don't know what we're doing. You know, there's nobody who can actually tell us what to do or which festivals. We're just hoping for the best and going on Film Freeway. I'm spending a lot of money. And I was like, oh, okay. So there's a need here that they need help in terms of guidance, getting into festivals and which ones, and also saving money. So I thought I can make the money by not spending a fortune on the wrong fees and paying me my work. So I was like, Hmm, this is going to be a business in it. And it was a, there's a pattern that kept reoccurring. Every festival I went to, when I saw filmmakers, I said, Oh, where are you going next with your film? They went, Oh, well, I waiting for the results to come in, but of course, we're just waiting to see what happens. And we're just guessing now how we do our poster and all our materials. We just need to talk to somebody. So at the time, there was nobody. Sometimes uh, PR companies would put them into some festivals, bigger ones, you know, because they knew the people. But there was nobody just actually focused on that niche, literally how to get your film into a film festival and, you know, to give them a, like a big list of which ones and why, which ones, help them achieve their goals, how to budget and also how to help themselves as a filmmaker. So I thought this, this is a dire need. Also, it's a need where people are like almost desperate for it they're wasting money on the wrong ones and going to one or two not really embracing the whole circuit so i wanted to do that and really push to do it but at the time there was one company that did it we found uh online so me and a friend of mine we were like i said i had this idea he was like oh let's see if anyone does it and it's on the internet and he said oh there's one company and they charged a very minimal fee and they seem to don't do a huge amount and you can you can build on that so that's what i did and they're based in the u.s and they still run now and they're a really really good company. Um, and since then, there's been a few more, um, but not many, not like, as, there's not as many people that do this compared to, say, a sales agent who sell films or a PR company that promote films. Uh, it is still a very small niche, um, but it's one that I have done to the point where I wanted to be going from a, seen as a luxury service to an in-demand service, and that's what I have achieved all this time. Not just me by myself, but the people that do it, but that's what I want from my company to be seen for the value to help the filmmakers.
0: And, and how did you, for, from turning it from a luxury into an in-demand, you're basically creating a market for your service, um, so that it's a status quo almost to, to get into a film festival now, this is, this is how you do it. It's not, you know, there was, there was the, the no box um, application or whatnot, I think that's what it was called, you mentioned before. Without a box. <laughs> without, yeah. a box without a box, no box, <laughs> without a box application. <laughs> And, uh, and that's how they, and that was the status quo. So now you sort of re, re, redone what the status quo is. So how, as, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's strategizing, was it just, was there any particular steps you took to turn this into a status quo? Or was it just, um, was it marketing at certain, uh, at certain festivals? Was it just getting a mass amount of clients and spreading it by word of mouth? I'm just wondering how the evolution over the past 10 years of, of your business uh, I guess mapped out a whole, uh, industry.
1: It's kind of been all of that. So it's me going to festivals, talking about what I do either to people at networking events or me going on panels. It's word of mouth. And it's also talking to people one-to-one about what they need when they just talk to me as friends as well. So it's a bit of a combination really, because when it first began, no one knew about it. Obviously, I had a good brand name and had a good logo and a website. So people come into the shop, um, but it was very much like no one knew of it because there was no reputation or establishment. That I found the hardest point because obviously I got this all from nothing and then wanted to make it into something credible. And that was by listening to my clients as well, what they wanted, what the market wanted, what the gap was, what I had to do differently over time and what their needs were. And also listen to more festivals. What they wanted, I knew where the perfect matches were. So it was very much like keeping on top of everything during this period and not letting letting the business ball slip. Um, But word of mouth was the best because when people started to hear about it and the good news that the clients got and the good word of mouth, people came more towards me. They could trust me, and me and my team to do a right job for them, look after them, Mm -hmm. because uh, filmmakers need that. And they worked a lot, worked a lot to put into business. And obviously, people do. Have issues with some of the people they work with, all that kind of thing, but they needed someone that could really take it away and just get it into festivals, get it seen, and get it out there. Really.
0: And do you find that? Um, do you find that these filmmakers struggle from the same? I guess like they're so into the creative, but they don't know the rest of it. So they love the creative. They love the they they love creating something. They love their passion, their art, their craft, but they may not know how to, again, like, you know, using your service, uh, get their work get their film out to the world. So when, when you work with somebody, it's obviously you're lining them up um, for the film that or the festival that works best for a film. But is there, is there like a, a strategy that you use to just outside? Cause you've won. Okay. You, so here I have 688. Um, is, is that the right number? 688? Oh no, sorry. 650 awards. Um yep. have you want and I'm sure that's gonna keep going, obviously. It has to the first it's now after the first six fifty. It's,
1: <laughs> it's now seven four five.
0: Seven forty-five. So it's not just saying, Hey, go go to this film festival and play your film and that's how there must be some sort of strategy, some marketing. So you bring in the right people, you showed up the right spots, you give them some guidance. So what what is that outside of just pointing them in the right direction?
1: So it's knowing what festival programmers want in terms of what they want to programme for their audiences and what their personal programme tastes. taste is. For example, some festival programmers hate, they just don't personally like slasher films, so don't give them slasher films for that festival. They want more films for the older audience. They want more kids' films that are more appealing to men and women who are fathers, mothers and daughters, and not just those who are just got a little, just for kids. So it's all about what the festivals want, uh, where the location is, and also, um, what kind of festival programmers really like themselves, because that will play a, a big factor into the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And something you pointed up, up on really well, was that a lot of my clientele, not all of them, but a lot of them don't know what they want. So I always have to unpack that and say, okay, so you made the film, what do you want to achieve in the Festival Circuit with the film? What are your goals? And that makes them think, ah, okay. Then they have to figure out about money all last minute sometimes. But some of them are planned ahead and do come, do come to you quite early. People in the budget early, but some pretty much do it as they go along, which is fine, it can still work. But I'm there at the end to say to them, so what do you want to achieve with the film now it's done? Festivals and distribution. Either way, we can help you for sure.
0: And then after after they work or or the, after they work to get their film into a festival, for an indie film, what is the path to success? What is the what is the the the, the boxes that have to be ticked, so that it will go from independent film festival to something that, you know, again I'm going to reference myself because I'm am I'm, I'm the definition of a layman in a lot of these topics, <laughs> just like just a complete consumer. How do how do what do they have to accomplish for me to hear about it? They win an award at a film festival, and then do you help them with distribution? Do you help? Do you have channels that you optimize for them so that they can get it mainstream? They can get it on Netflix. They can get it in you know um, uh, like a mainstream, uh, I guess theater or for a lot, now where no one's in owning the theater. I think Netflix is probably the the place to go. But um, yeah. what's like what's the next step for somebody to be considered? Because the, the award's the first step in success. But yes. unless unless you know somebody sitting at home has ever heard of them, it's not going to be the epitome of success that you know you'd say a Hollywood a blockbuster would have that has a huge budget behind it. So it's obviously very difficult. That's, that's apparent. But how do you how do you help them with that? And and is there a is there some milestones that they can achieve or a game plan that they can sort of uh, double down on that will help them get there?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question because the way that I approach. Um, creating a film festival strategy is not just always film festivals. So, for example, I'll give you this as a good way of answering those questions. So, there is the one obviously way. Is when I, when I began, was saying to my clients, um, helping them and consulting with them to create a student line and focus bespoke to their film film festival strategy. That would be a load of festivals they should submit to. But the way I'd encourage it for feature films, especially not so much short films, but feature films is to add several layers. So that is your film festivals to start off with, win your awards and get noticed on the circuit and build your presence. And also include within that then your kind of ideal list of sales agents who will be able to sell the film when it has finished its run to Netflix, iTunes, Amazon, all those kind of places, Walmart, whatever, whatever suitable. And also include as well, when you're at festivals, your PR plan and your marketing plan. Because you're going to need to start making some noise People hear about the movie in the mainstream and also in the independent sector to know more about this film. And then when it gets picked up by an agent, it'll then obviously go further afield. You have to think of all those um, areas as well at this time now before we do the festival circuit, that we have everything in place. need to push the button when we need to do so. So it's like an eel-like process. It's never very linear. Like first you do that, you do that. It's like all at the same time and see what results come in. So do all the festival submissions that, that, that you want to do. Whatever comes back, see what comes in first, what the patterns are, which other festivals like it. Is it more genre festivals than it is, say, general festivals? Is it more women's festivals and short film festivals? Whatever is going to come in. And then also think about when is the right time to press that button to talk to sales agents to sell it. And then get your PR done the minute you get your world premiere and get it out there. So that's how I kind of approach it. So it has those goals achieved want to achieve in the first place
0: and i'm also very curious just given our current landscape what are you doing for your own business as, as well as for your clients given that the entire at least for the the short future of media of the way we view films of the of even i'm assuming film events that has somewhat changed so what what has that done for for you have you found strategies to pivot are there things that you know that you've seen in the industry that just trends that are changing because of like COVID-19 and whatnot
1: yes so it's actually a funny story well not a funny story but a story to tell is when this all kicked off this pandemic I was in the U.S. and I was there attending CineQuest Film Festival in San Jose and I was going into LA to do some work there
0: Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. And to start transforming your to do list with Belay.
1: I was launching my own event called Visionary Filmmakers in Cid, And there was also a film festival taking place um, towards the end of my trip in Idlewild. So every day was about coronavirus. The minute I got there, it was about coronavirus, all about this. Every minute, something was new about it. It was quite mad. And then during a soiree at Cinequest, there was a big announcement that South by Southwest, a massive film festival in Austin, Mm -hmm. Texas, was cancelled. We were like, hang on. This must be pretty serious to cancel an event like that and then obviously by that point every other festival is having to reschedule to later on in the year or go online um so i saw there was film there was um, filmmakers being extremely anxious about what was happening because obviously things were changing so i did all my research with the people i was talking to at cinequest and all my other kind of colleagues in the film in the film festival sector and they were saying that you know they have to Reschedule because it's too much of a high risk of infection and contagion when you're in a big event like a film festival. So I knew then what exactly what needed to be done. So I reassured filmmakers the way to adapt to it was to prepare for the end of the year. So between March and July, you'll be looking at festivals, you know, watching them online, not going to them. And then from August onwards, that was when festivals were rescheduling to go live. Obviously, having to implement social distancing and all that kind of the rules, which fine which needs to be done but you need to get your film to festival end of the year you need to obviously submit now because deadlines are still happening and they're going to start closing around june so it's important to act as normal now the time to plan prepare for the end of the year next year and start doing your submissions so that you get in the film in the system and it can start to be reviewed so a lot of filmmakers assumed that every festival was cancelled in the world after sabbath Southwest. i said no no they were going online or they were moving to later date. That to kind of reiterate the same point, which was fine to make that clear and to keep submitting. Otherwise, you'd miss your chance of getting the film seen at some point this year. So it was oh. having just in that kind of mode, really, and also to me because I was having to I did it very quickly, and I saw the saw the um, the new problems were and how to fix them.
0: No, I was going to say that's a smart. Um, it's a smart response, and it's the response that you would you you should have um, just because. Uh, people that just throw their hands in the air and this is again I whenever I speak my experience is just in business in general not particularly films but I'm assuming it's very similar especially because this industry could be one where somebody who produces a film somebody who's trying to get into event you know this happens and they just say oh whatever we'll, we're going to just like we're just going to stop trying we're going to not put any effort in we're not going to do applications but that's obviously yeah. the wrong attitude right because there are events happening there's remote events there's online events there's web events and all these different things where people are still competing for the attention of the audience. And there's actually an opportunity, in my opinion, because there's so many people that are thinking, okay, let's just write this year off. There's so many businesses that are thinking that. And it's the incorrect assumption because the people that understand how to bring their product to market regardless of what's happening in the world the people that can bring their film to a film festival a virtual film festival people that still prep ahead for a film festival that's slightly different because of social distancing or guidelines that are implemented those are the people that will win so yes. to have somebody you know that's giving them that advice is, is you know spot on because i think that it's still going to be a competitive market and if you can i actually think it's going to be a better opportunity for businesses to stand out now because because everyone was so sort of shell shocked by what's going right. on
1: yeah no absolutely you're absolutely right um i mean you're, you're spot on um i mean in terms of like people say giving up that is the worst thing because you won't get a win and it's like what's that what, what's the kind of thing i live by it's a quitter um never quits and um a, a quitter never wins and a winner yeah. always never,
0: quit. never or quits never sorry. quits
1: that's, <laughs> that's right
0: quitter <laughs> <laughs> <So, maybe laughs> we <were> <laughs> never wins winner never quits
1: that's it. Um, so, but also, I had some clients say, who are potential clients. I said, "Oh, how's the film coming up? Have you, have you done more post production? Because obviously, you've got a bit more time." And they went, "Yeah, but it's no point doing anything, is there? The festival was cancelled. I went, well, no, no. It's like having to reschedule. So again, it's that you know, she told tell you to submit though when everything's back to normal? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be towards the end of the year when we can start back to normal. And you're going to submissions then it's going to be next year. So people, I think it's all about timelines. A lot of them yeah. say." We've got to go online, have we? Well, if you submit the film a while ago and you got in, all the festivals now running were tend to run live, not online. It's just one of those things, you know. Yeah. Uh, you
0: Very good. And and that's something that I think is, like I said, it's impacting everyone, but the people that can figure out how to navigate it right now, that those are the people that are going to be winning. Um, and, and that's an opportunity for, the, like for, for sure. Um, the one thing, the other thing I wanted to ask about, because I saw you've brought this topic up in... A few of your past interviews, so uh, I think it's something that you're passionate about, but um, women in film um, perhaps uh, what's holding women back in film and why and and what can be done to to sort of help uh i guess allow women to be successful in film um i saw I saw this on one interview and I thought it was interesting because i've spoken about i've spoken about this with a few other individuals like. Uh, women in leadership positions, and, for example, uh, s- uh, software sales, they're they're grossly misrepresented. I know nothing about the stats about um, women in film. So I would love for you to just give me some stats about what's or not even the hard numbers, but just like high level, what what the environment is like for women in the industry and and why it's difficult uh, for women to uh, succeed. Is it Is it just a, just something that has just always been that way? Um, is it just a very male-dominated industry? Um, is there, what are the reasons, or what have you noticed, and how do we help that?
1: So one thing I have noticed, no matter what goes on in the background, like with the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns, I thought that would maybe make a difference in terms of seeing more female-led uh, films directed by women, uh, more like produced by women too. I thought there would be a surge in that, but there wasn't as much as I expected, so it seemed like it's always the same, it's talking nothing really actually changing mm-hmm. is hard for women to get a gig to direct a feature film. There's plenty of short films directed by a woman, loads of them, which is great. They're doing it all themselves. There are funds just for women in some areas in the UK and also in the US, which is great. And those of color too, which is good for the, for them, obviously with them, the niche. Um, but also it is one of those things where there's a lot of women support groups and they support each other, but it becomes like a little bubble. There's never really, like, you know, going out of that bubble to mix with men and, you know, have men be, you know, their assistants and they're, like, you know, HODs and they'll be the leaders. That doesn't really change that much. And Besides Captain Bigelow, there's not a huge amount of, like, female directors people can actually say off the top of their head. You know, it's like something I learned in film studies. It was very much all about, you know, the men. Everyone remember the names. Yeah, Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey, Tarantino, Rodriguez, Kenneth Anger. All these people, it was always men. And there was very few with women. Um, obviously, it's Sally Potter, those kind of people, there are legends. But it's always a high percentage of men. And it hasn't changed, no matter how much people shout about it. And with Me Too, I think the best thing out of Me Too was Harvey Weinstein going to jail, when his lawyer said they wouldn't, You wouldn't go to jail.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that was the best success ever. Um, but in terms of seeing like more creativity for women, not a huge amount. I mean, even festivals have now made space for more women-focused You know, like directed by women kind of themes, which is great Um, after Me Too, but then when Me Too kind of died down and the pandemic comes in, it seems to have gone back to what it was. No change, really. So Mm. that's disappointing. But I do work with um, some fantastic female directors and she's going to hopefully get her feature off the ground. She's a visionary. Uh, She did a big budget sci-fi and she's got a short we're working on now, it's just finished called Proxy. And I love her vision. It's amazing. She's fantastic. Um, and she's done it all by just shouting it herself and doing it herself and not asking anybody else to do it for her or a man for that reason, um, which is great. But you have to have that belief in yourself and the drive. And some women don't always have that because they say, oh, the man's got the role or the man's doing it, uh, which needs to be about themselves, self-belief.
0: So they psychologically default to what they know the industry is, um, yeah. which is which is yeah, which is obviously not um, not – proper that's not that's not good so yeah. to to break out of that i think that i think that you know you do have these like these visionaries that create incredible content and that sort of paves paves paths for other yeah. people you know other people that will look up to them um see the incredible things that they're doing and then obviously understand And then as you see new people coming into the industry their perspective of the industry is not for example your perspective of the industry because they came into it at a different time when there was a, you know different people that were leading and and those are the ones that were sort of the you know the tarantinos and the rodriguez as some of those names will change over time but it's definitely not quick um because you know if you're of course the the me too movement was very good for for protecting rights and whatnot. Yeah. but it's oh, not yeah. it's, it's not it's not it's not pushing people to the pinnacle of 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 these big names, these big roles. I, I'm saying that because I, I don't know the names. Um and I, I must, I'm hoping that, you know, you, you know all the ones that are sort of up and coming and whatnot, but I don't know any big female director names like, you know, the, the that we just mentioned. So I guess that it's it's a slow moving change in an industry. Um I just didn't realize that there was not so many names in in film and that's kind of disappointing i didn't realize that industry was so male dominated but i'm also not in that industry so i i I don't have a a finger on the pulse of it like you do so i mean the
1: uh just going back to that quickly is um i think two women who are most inspirational in the more mainstream world of film but also stroke now tv is jennifer aniston and reese witherspoon they had a Mm -hmm. show the morning show uh, which obviously touched upon those issues of Me Too. So kind of show wrote itself when it all kicks off in the background. That was quite an exceptional kind of breakthrough, I thought. But in terms of independent film, there isn't, as you say, that one name or I mean, there's women, but it's not like, it's all loads of women. It tends to be more outweighed by men, women, by men,
0: mm-hmm.
1: basically. So yeah, so it is a shame that there's not been a dramatic shift as I thought there would be with all the Me Too going in the background and how it would be. But uh, no it's pretty much gone back a little bit to what it was, not been a huge amount of progress
0: yeah, it could be, and it also could be just because um if you think about the names we mentioned, like like these like almost like these like living legends, uh, those names took years to build right so if if you have an up and coming that's going to start creating these feature films before they turn into a household name, they would have had to it, it quite literally take some time for all these films to be produced and created. Um, before i've heard of i don't who's who's the who's the lady who was doing that one film that you mentioned um
1: oh there's my client um yeah. her name is sophia, sophia banks so and- sophia
0: banks so she's going to have to produce a few big name a few big feature films before like everyone's going to recognize oh that's a banks film right it's, it'll take some time and that's that's i think that's just the, the reality yeah. of the uh of the industry it's not like you can produce five feature films simultaneously they all and, 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 three years, you've produced all these blockbuster hits. It takes quite literally time to build this stuff out. So it could be some, there could be some names in the making. That's, that's, that was my point there. And maybe that uh, the industry, maybe, maybe the industry's shifted. Hopefully the industry shifted somewhat so that it's not uh, that it's not just focused entirely on what's already been, but there are some names that are building themselves up. And then maybe you see a shift in five years or something like that because of the work they've put in over the past five years. Um, that would be that would be that would be a positive uh, a positive thing um
1: business
0: yes exactly yeah um okay so that before i want to ask just a few more questions about your life lessons experiences insights before i move back and sort of focus on you again um was there anything about the current environment. I always sort of like give the floor because I'm, I'm not smart enough to ask all the good questions. <laughs> so, you know, about um, current media landscape, uh, you know, current um, film festival landscape, what you're doing, uh, I guess, even, even women in film, these are kind of the three topics that we spoke about. Is there anything that we didn't sort of bring up that were really good points that we should, you know, just get on record? Or, or was, that, uh, was that pretty uh, all-inclusive?
1: My key thing was CB19 was COVID um, because I think it's also a lot of people are buying into the fear which they're being fed, and I think if um, if you just literally remove from the drama and don't buy into it, you can really see your film flourishing. And to not presume or assume without actually speaking to somebody about it that works in that field every day, um, that was my key thing. I think a lot of it is about self belief comes into these kind of things when a pandemic happens. Um because I've actually the business has grown a lot since I've been um uh, in, mm. in home in UK um because I've got a list of things I wanted to do and I managed to put those in place. That was like launching my blog. I'm gonna be launching an online course in September, being putting that all together in place. And we've got new clients and it's been doing really well. So it's like another like another month in in the in my office really, even really busy but just not traveling <laughs> or going to festivals. Um, one thing I would also add into that is Maybe off the topic a little bit, but in terms of important points. Um, but I think it's also important to ground oneself who are filmmakers and creative types um, because in this industry it is a bit mad, and it's important to just stay grounded and meditate as you can and to not kind of like um, adjust yourself or buy into kind of any drama or any self belief. You have to believe in your vision, both as an entrepreneur, as a business, as a filmmaker. And if, because if you don't and you believe other people's kind of gossip or you just take everything that uh, what people believe is the truth, you'll end up being stuck and not grow and you're going to be thinking small. So I, I always bring in spirituality and meditation every day into my entrepreneur life.
0: You've spoken about, um, this is a really good, okay, so this is a really good point because I want to ask you a little bit more about what you've learned over uh, your career and just sort of like advice that you give people. But uh, let's speak about um, spirituality, limiting beliefs uh, that you incorporate. So what does that mean to you? And, and maybe just describe uh, how you incorporate spirituality and, and removing those limiting beliefs from your own mind so that you can be successful.
1: So back when I first started my company up in the early days, it's like when I moved to London, um, people always said that filmmakers have no money and they were able to afford new services. And you couldn't do it any like a high price what you're worth. And I thought to myself at one point, I almost believed it almost. And then I said to myself, when I saw my mentor for the first time, I said, um, my business won't work anymore because, um, people say filmmakers have no money. I've only charged like 60 pounds for the hour session. And she said, well, that's limiting belief. She says there are people that can afford your rate and your full worth. You just have to attract them and find them. They do exist. There are some that haven't got any money. That's true. But there are some, and a lot of them that do. So you need to think big and stop thinking small and also turn that around. She said to me, a golden rule, she said, is that when you have a limiting belief pop up, remember that isn't true. It's a belief. There's no fact to it. You can turn that around. You just told me nobody can afford your service. You have to charge a lower fee. There are people that can. And if you charge that lower fee, they'll wonder why not charging a higher fee because their energy is much more like a mountain level than it is, say, the ground level. So, think bigger and your energy will uh, raise your vibration. And when I did that, everything changed. And in between that, as well, is that I used to be very, very, when I was younger, really anxious. I had like panic attacks, hair fell out. Um, but then as, that was because I had so much fear in me because I didn't know how to co create with the universe and how to, um, like, you know, work as a team to get the results to manifest um, without having the ego drive me and being selfish and not being grateful. So when I learned how that worked through various books, um, but also with mentors and guides, um, I then realized where I was going slightly wrong, not the least. Then when I put that into alignment, into place, I saw it all come together. One thing was letting go, <laughs> was a big I thing. I was
0: gonna I was going say because when people, when, when people listen to this, um sometimes it's hard for them to conceptualize if they're not if they don't understand how to remove limiting beliefs, if, you know, you, you hear the words alignment, you hear the words manifesting, and um, it's very confusing people that haven't understood or researched or whatnot. So I think that um, when I when I hear this stuff, I sort of want to provide context. And a lot of it is is just, I don't mean to simplify it, but not stressing about things knowing that, like there's so many there's there's so many things in your life that you stress about that you shouldn't stress about like knowing that um what whatever decisions you make as long as you're moving in the right direction like that they will it'll work out per se i'm not phrasing it properly but it's really just um like trusting the process is probably the best way to put it and and really just and and really just you know if you if you know that you're putting in your 100 effort if you are if you're moving in the right direction um, the small things that stress you out, you have to let go of those because you, you know that you're moving towards your end goal, even if it isn't as quick or even if you have some losses or failures. Um, and, and what the way I, and you can correct me if you think differently, but I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But the way I envision manifesting and the way that I envision alignment with, with the universe, so to speak, is really just making sure that every action I take, every thought that I take is in line with my end goal is meant to be. And when you have that constant mindset of end goal, long term, like North Star metric, so to speak, um, the small things, they become very small, they become non-important. But also every action you take subconsciously will be towards that end goal. Um, And I think that if you incorporate that into your life, into your day, and you're always sort of pushing forward, then that's what creates success after, you know, 5, 10 years. That's my, that's my, that's the best way that I do it. And when I break it down for people to help understand, like when people mention manifesting and whatnot, because I think that I only, I only provide context because the second somebody does manifesting, I think they think that, you know, like the secret. And, and if you think about a $5 bill, you'll get a $5 bill, but there's so much more to it than that. So I just wanted to sort of break it down. I don't know uh, if you, if you disagree or agree, feel free to comment, but that, that's just my, my, I guess. Layman interpretation of of how best to think about it if you haven't done a lot of in depth research into it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's right. To, that's why how you described that process. Also, I think I'd add to it is um to whenever you write your goals and your manifestation, you set what you want to achieve and your intentions. Is one one thing I was always told was to make sure that it isn't selfish. Yeah, you know, I want to be a star. I want to get this. It's always say it's for other people as well. Like it's mm-hmm. for not just you, but also for others. And you're helping the world and servicing and putting the service out there for others and not just all about you. I think it's like when you, there's a book called Energetic um, Selling and Branding. And then if you kind of t- close a deal with a client, it comes all about you and it's forcing them to say yes, because you want that deal. You're going to feel that energy and they're going to want to work with you. Whereas if you say like, so what do you want? We can help you this way. We have this and we have this other service. It's going to really help you achieve the goal in this way. And I'm very passionate to do it for you. i love to, to work on it. And it becomes neutral alignment. If it's all much just trying to get the sale because you want to get the books up and, you know, whatever, whatever reason you're desperately for it, you're going to feel that energy. And it's the wrong energy to have. And I learned that in the early days. And also now is that I think, ah, okay, that makes sense. And also letting go because in that process as well. So, for example, people, things always circle back around, one of my mentors told me. So I had a client the other day, who now has become a client, and she reached out to me and said, um, why is my film not getting into festivals, and just asked why. So I told her why, and then I said, this best service will be this service for you. And then she said, well, oh, we've got really no budget there. Um, do you have any kind of discounts? And I said, well, I could do this package for this package, for this fee. Um, and then she took a while to get back, but then she came around and said, I'd love to work with you on this, I think you can really help me. And I. I just let it go. And I said, Well, I've, got, I've given her the best offer. I'm not going to go too low to the point where it makes me look desperate. I'm going to the point where I'm going to help her because I want to help this film get seen because it is really sweet. And she's an actress that wants to get back out there. She's, you know, she's got a good agents. She's in Starship Troopers, all this kind of thing. And she deserves to. And I thought, Well, I've given the best offer. And then I can then still go back around. And maybe someone else comes to replace her. Letting go in that process. I forgot. I didn't forget, but I just, it was there. But I just didn't every day think about it
0: that's smart and it's also um it's also important to to understand that when you're coming from a place of desperation and and just like that self i guess only only driven by self um yeah. you the 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 the, the passion I, it's not even passion it's almost just like greed uh to that point at, at that level um it burns out and and it's it's yeah. you can't maintain it you can't maintain it if it's if it's for like I always again just another parallel for context like you could be working making you know in a career 200,000 which is which is an, an incredible salary, salary for uh, for most people and if you hate your work you're you're going to you're going to hate your life and uh there's, there's yeah. you know and you're and that's why you know maybe the maybe 200,000 is is a is a lot of money for a lot of people but i mean let's bring it down to a more practical level um if you're working in a in a job a lot of people would change jobs for $10,000 or even $15,000. They'd take that bump up, right? They think it's going to make their life so much better. But um, I always advise against just jump. Of course, if the job's great and you, and you want to work there, that's fine. But do the due diligence and understand that the 15000 10000 is not going to make your life that much better. There's a lot of other factors that could impact your life and, and how happy you are. Exactly. Um, and and $15,000 at a job you hate, you're, you're gonna, you're, you're not going to enjoy your life. So, um so I think that, you know, if you don't have those reasons why you're passionate, if you don't, even as an entrepreneur, right, if you go through, if you go through all this, like, just really the shit, like for 10 years, and you and well, you, you won't last 10 years, if you don't, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're going to burn out, you're going to yeah. quit. And, and especially as an entrepreneur, like you have, uh, you have years of, of not making a lot of money before before it's realized so you better not be doing it for the money day one or 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 it'll, it'll never last um exactly. so that's all very it's it's all very applicable and it's, and it's smart to be reminded of that i think that a lot of people you know yeah. it's, it's very easy to it's very easy to jump into something for the money and obviously it's not saying that if you can't it's, i, I want to be so sensitive right now cuz people are laid off and people are you know having a hard time putting food on the table so obviously, if you need to take something to, to make sure that your needs are met, you know, your shelter, your food, food, your safety, that's fine. But I mean, in a regular environment, when, when the economy isn't crashing and you do have luxury to some extent to make a choice, I would say always focus on things that are long-term, you're passionate about, that you can be happy about, because that's really what's going to make, you know, that, that is the, the secret of, of happiness in life. Um, exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It is. That, is. that is what the secret is of happiness. And also, yeah. You're an entrepreneur because it means that you're obsessed with your business and also you really want to uh, solve that pain that that potential client of yours has. Obviously the pain that my clients have is where do I submit? How do I do it? What do I do? When do I do this? Now covid 19's happened. Lots yeah. of questions you have to be there for and if you remain grounded and know your stuff they're going to need and help them resolve that pain.
0: The only other uh, question that I wanted to ask, um, I I saw at at one point in your career, you were a lecturer and mentor at Middlesex uh, University. Yep. Um, So you speak with a lot of of young students of, I'm assuming um, young and aspiring filmmakers, writers. What is one piece of advice that you would give them um, that perhaps you could even say you would tell your younger self?
1: So a good question. And one thing I would always say would be to, one, is believe in yourself. And two, is always have a plan. <laughs> uh, whether it be a 10-year plan, you can work on that. Start it up and go backwards. But belief is the key thing because there were people who were saying to me that the business wouldn't work, go off the ground, is they were maybe subconsciously, they, without knowing, was like, you know, not having my self-worth and self-belief. Um, but then I just thought, hang on, it's an opinion. It's not a fact. It's opinion. I'm going to stay stay true to me and what I believe and what I want to do, because that will be what wins, and I won't give up. So it is really standing firm and believing in yourself.
0: Um, another another question I like to ask: um, Where do you go to grow yourself? So do you have books that you enjoy, podcasts, Audibles, mentors, um, things that you could uh, you could recommend people that are listening? They go check out and it could be for film. It could be for just, you know, you mentioned you read some stuff on, on, on limiting beliefs, on professional and personal growth. So do you have any any titles or any names of people that people should go check?
1: Yes. So I definitely recommend a podcast called How to Fail, <laughs> which is for entrepreneurs and you can find it everywhere, you know, like um, you know, Google, iTunes, Spotify, the whole lot It's on there. That's really good because it is for entrepreneurs, and it's saying you know, not to be scared of failure because of how good it is when you do it to help you grow and to go on the next step. In terms of books, um, I have a few books that I like, and there's one in particular. And this is a really good one for people to research and read when I talk about the manifestation kind of process. So it's called Cosmic Ordering Made Easier by Ellen Watts. It's UK author, UK-based publication. But she was the one that taught me about cosmic ordering. It's kind of similar to manifestation to a degree, but it's more like you ask the universe what you want. And it really helps you sharpen your perception when you see the orders come in. I know mm-hmm. it's weird, but I'll explain it. So, for example, she, says, she talks in, in the book about how you place a cosmic order. Just start off by doing uh, car parking. So, say to the universe, is what I really love and appreciate is to get a parking space on my arrival to um, Loughton High Street. But the good of all concerned was at the end. So, you know, so it's all of those that need it. And obviously you drive down the road and you're like, well, okay, let's see the parking spaces. And there it is. It's either empty waiting for you or a car just pulls out and you go in and then the other stuff happens too. And how you think about how to, how to word these things, how for it to be not selfish and how to, to be not loaded, There's loads of things in there. And I do that every single morning. When I do my goals, what I want to achieve, I put it into an order. So for example, did it today. I said this morning, when I got up at about six, I said, Oh, what we really love and appreciate is one of my films to get into a film festival. For the good of all concern. So people say "Oh, all will be no festivals giving you invites. Now this kind of thing, limiting belief. What comes in seven hours later was an invite to a film festival out of the blue. I didn't know they were going to get back to me today, but they did. So I let go of all expectation in terms of which festival, which film, and like try to plan it and interfere. And it's literally just, well, something will come in and look forward to the surprise. So that is a great book. It's on like amazon.com and uk for sure. But it really is a good technique to just know differently how to ask for things and how to work with the universe and co-create. And then also, as I said, it's sharpening your perception. So when you see all this coming, sometimes they come a different way to what you might expect. You actually get sharper in how you look at things. And also that helps your business by extension as well.
0: That's, those, are all, those are all the questions I have. Um, was, there, was there anything, I guess, the, the only question that I have left is if people want to connect or they want to find out more about you or maybe some of the films you represent or whatnot, um, where would they go?
1: So the best place to go for that information, they can listen to my podcast, they can listen to my, sorry, they can read my blogs and they can know all about me, my story, which you kind of just said, but a little bit more about me and my team and also The Films We Work On, which is my website. That is Good. the filmfestivaldoctor.com. and you can grab me there on email, WhatsApp, whatever, so on.
0: is the, uh, the podcast is there too?
1: Yep, the podcast is there in the podcast uh, tab in the blog, and also the shop, which has e-books as well. You can get an audio book, um, and I'll soon be launching in September an online course, which is four weeks, called VIP Film Distribution which is all about how to implement that key strategy, putting together your sales strategy, your festival plan, your marketing plan, and PR. And it's all for those who are new or established. Everyone can join. And it's masterclasses twice a week from now.
0: That's all for today. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Success Story Podcast. You can download or stream this podcast wherever podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many others. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story.